certainly I'd been part of medical teams that had lost people in the past, but it was always in a hospital environment and it still hits home to a degree, but it was just a whole different level when it's someone you know, someone who you've had breakfast with, you know, the day before. And also when you're the one everyone's looking to as the person who's going to save this situation and and you simply can't. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the plane burst Proud of the plane. crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Today's conversation is with Dr. Dan Pronk, a former Special Forces soldier. Dan served with the regular army in East Timor before undertaking four tours of Afghanistan with Special Operations Units, the 2nd Commando Regiment and the Special Air Service Regiment. Dan spoke with Sharon Maskell-Dare about his journey to Special Forces, the trauma of combat and life as an elite soldier. This is the first instalment of a two-part episode. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you're listening to Life on the Line. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Dan Pronk, a former SAS officer who served in East Timor and Afghanistan. As a doctor, he's seen firsthand the realities and the cost of conflict, and he's with us today to tell us how those experiences have made him the man, the husband, the father and the son that he is today. Dan Pronk, welcome to Life on the Line. Thank you kindly, Sharon. It's a, it's a great privilege to be here. So tell us first of all a bit about your childhood and how your journey into the military first came about. I guess going, going back to my childhood, the army particularly was very uh, familiar to me. My, my father had been a, a military helicopter pilot. And so from an early age that we were exposed to army, particularly aviation, lots of time spent out on base at, at air shows and open days and those sort of things. And that was back in the days where you could get out and, and go for the families were invited to go up in the aircraft and, and go out and they'd set up and we'd, we'd go out and we'd shoot blank in M60s and travel around in armoured vehicles. And so I guess from a very early age, both my brother and I had that military exposure. Uh, it was very familiar to us. It was it was demystified, if you like. We, we knew uh, to a degree from that perspective what it was all about. So we grew up with it. We grew up in, in, in an army household. Of course, we, we moved regularly as a result of that. And I guess that was to a degree formative in our ability to, my brother and I, to be able to uproot and plug into to different schools and build a new support community, which, which so I suppose from a childhood, the, like I said, the military was very familiar to us. And, and uh, I guess that influenced to a degree later in life when, when both my brother and I did eventually drift into the, the military. So did you know from a young age that you were going to join up yourself? Was it always on your radar? No, not not for me at all. So I think maybe 
maybe uh, my brother, absolutely, from the earliest age, he was going to be nothing but a soldier and he ended up pursuing that career uh, to a very high level. For myself, I was maybe because of that influence, that family influence, I was very much the the antithesis of, of military when I was younger. I went in a completely different direction and grew my hair long and had dreadlocks and earrings and and uh, sort of was a, a bit more rebellious than than uh, conformist as a as a kid goodness me dreadlocks and earrings I, I can't imagine you turning up at the recruiting office with those well the irony was I, I probably am more clean cut now as a civilian than I ever was in my time with uh, with the army and, and some of the haircuts I had throughout my career with the army were were probably uh, not quite uh, compliant with regulation to be honest but yeah you, you, you certainly from a, a teenage uh, age it was never never had any intention of ending into the military and I was quite bemused when my brother did to be honest I at that stage I had a, a keen interest in triathlon when I left school and and had hoped at that point to pursue your career in professional uh, triathlon and that was indeed what I did for the five years out of school was did some part-time university and moved to the Gold Coast to try and uh, crack it as a professional triathlete initially so it was it was sort of all shaved legs and lycra and and uh, training around the clock and and what have you so it was yeah there was no no thought at all until my early 20s of a, a military career. So what what about that transformation from the aspiring triathlete and that dreadlocked teenager to actually deciding to join the military yourself? What ended up happening? So my initial degree I did up on the Griffith University on the Gold Coast and I did an exercise science degree part-time over about four and a half years to allow the time to to train and and go away and race and try and pursue the triathlon dream there. And at the end of that, that was around the year 2000, I'd taken a a year off completely to train and race and just really give the triathlon thing a nudge to see if I was capable of of achieving the, the level that I wanted to. And it turned out I just simply wasn't. I just I was training with the with some of the best in the world and doing what they were doing, but they were just on a, a whole another level to where I was at. And there was a younger generation of, of athletes coming through that were starting to beat me, despite being two, three, four years younger. And I, I could see the writing on the wall that I was not going to be able to compete at the level I wanted to. I wasn't going to be able to sustain a career in professional triathlon, so I, I had to look elsewhere for for something to move on to career-wise. I'd done my exercise science degree, which in itself was largely, it was very interesting. I enjoyed it. It complemented my training well. It was the theory behind the practice of what I was doing. But in in itself at that point, it was not a good qualification. It didn't lead to any real career in itself. But what it did do was serve as a good launch off point for further study. And so the options there were either probably physiotherapy was a, a natural progression or sit the graduate medical school's admission test for postgraduate medical studies. And so at the time I did that, around the same time I was looking at, uh, my brother had gone into the military, as I said, it was a familiar career to me. And I started to explore options of potentially a career in the military. And then it all uh, came together with, uh, I managed to get a spot in medical school in the end. I passed the GAMSAT exam and interviewed and got a spot. And the army had a scholarship scheme where they would pay for you to go to medical school. And so I kind of uh, fell backwards in a way into the the military. It was a, a means of there was I didn't have another good way of funding medical schooling. I'd uh, got a spot, wanted to go, and I saw the army as a I guess in effect a, a free pass to study medicine. To be honest, and how did your degree go? Were you a natural doctor? <coughs> I guess it, once again, like the army, it was something I'd never considered until the few months before I 
sat the GAMSAT exam. So it wasn't something that was ever available to me out of school. My marks out of school were, were not great. I wasn't very studious at school. I was more interested in other things and had a great time, but didn't do well academically. So I guess for that reason, I, I didn't have the marks to even ever consider studying medicine or law or anything like that that you needed the top grades for. So it hadn't been on my radar. There's no doctors in my family prior to me. So it's it was something that, unlike the army, the medicine was unfamiliar to me. And it just turned up as an opportunity when the triathlon thing fell through and, and uh, when it, I mean it wasn't dissimilar the early years of medicine weren't dissimilar in this from a study perspective to the exercise science that I'd done it was a science base so that was a good transition into it I was familiar with that material and then the other the actual doctoring the all the clinical stuff uh, builds on from there so yeah look I, I'm not sure that I was ever cut out to be a doctor or I was destined to be a doctor but it, it, it seemed like a great progression at the time and, and I, I came to really enjoy it. So once you'd completed medical school then came the military bit so what do you remember about your first exposure other than through your family to your military career? Well what had happened was so I'd, I'd signed up to the army and I was on the army's books. I was getting paid by the army to study. But for all intents and purposes, I was a uni student like anyone else. There was no obligation for me to turn up and parade at any unit or do any army commitment during my studies. It was fundamentally they signed me up and said, you know, turn up in six years when you're qualified and skilled and, and we'll throw a uniform on at that point. What had happened in between was uh, my brother at the time was serving with uh, SAS. He'd, he'd done selection and, and gone across to the unit. And, and I had at the end of my first year, which was 2001, so the September 11 events had occurred, of course, and the Twin Towers had fallen and Australia was gearing up, had sent an initial special operations detachment over to Afghanistan. And long story short, I'd, I'd visited Perth and, and uh, had a look around the unit there and, and just, uh, I had, had no exposure to that world prior to that. And I, I met a few of the people and, and saw what went on and saw that what I felt was a really meaningful job that they were contributing to and uh, everything ramping up in Afghanistan. And, and it was like a light bulb moment for me. That was what I wanted to do. So I was, I was only at the end of my first year of medical schooling. I had a long time to go before I could even consider trying to do a selection course or, or what have you. But I realized at that point, that was the direction I wanted to head. So I'd gone back to uni the next year and then started to engage with the local reserve units in Adelaide. I was studying down in Adelaide and and started to to plug in and do a little bit of a little bit of shooting a little bit of stuff with the the local army unit uh, the the Aggies the air ground defence guys out at the RAF base at Edinburgh were very good at getting me along and so I got started getting a few weapons qualifications doing a, a bit of military stuff sort of off my own bat during my medical schooling time and and really started to try and build that skill set as well and familiarise myself with the military side whilst I was doing the the medical side I even managed to go for a couple of weeks and do one component of the specialist service officer course uh, while I was was doing my medical schooling. So I started to develop that interest and it was the interest had, was really based on that exposure that I'd had to SASR at the time. And yeah. So it sounds like you're pretty single-minded that right from the beginning when you've had that first exposure, you made the decision that you wanted to go and join the regiment and you essentially set about getting yourself this whole suite of experience and skills that would then support your selection. 
Yeah, look, that's exactly right. I guess I had that experience where I had my mind set on being a professional athlete for what was six, seven years. That was my, my sole focus there and that had fallen through. Like That was devastating for me at the time. I was directionless and from there I'd kind of, as I said, drifted into largely medical school and the military and hadn't really had that focus to be passionate about. So when I became aware of what uh, special operations were doing and I guess that the physical aspect Aspect of it, I was drawn to that. Having come from a, I guess the excitement to a degree, it's 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 from the outside. Special operations appears very shiny, and I wanted in on that. And so, yeah, you're right. It from that, and I, I used to term a light bulb moment, and it was it was like my, my eyes were open to this world, and I wanted to be in on it. And so I just set this goal that I knew would be years and years away, but uh, knew that I had a lot of time to prepare myself, and so set about doing everything I possibly could to try and train myself towards that objective. So how did you prepare your body and mind to be able to be in that position when you were able to go through selection and and be even ready to apply? Well, look, I I guess the first of all, just learning as much as I could about the unit, about the selection process, about what would make me more appealing to them. Obviously, there's a big physical component and I had a lot of years there to be able to just start to train slowly but surely towards it with certain pack marching and and, uh, what have you, just a lot of running, push-ups, chin-ups, all all that sort of stuff. Nothing nothing, uh, too outrageous, but just uh, year in, year out, just making sure that I was slowly conditioning my body towards the physical physical requirements. From a mental perspective, I mean, obviously at the time I was doing my medical schooling, so that was that was my focus. Intellectually was geared towards that. Uh, I, I started studying Arabic uh, at the time, which turned out to be largely useless for me. As it turned out, I ended up in Afghanistan, not Iraq. But the process of learning Arabic was a good discipline. It was a good intellectual discipline to just uh, get myself to do that. I, I started, I joined a, a gun club and got a couple of uh, handguns and rifles and just started getting a bit more familiar with firearms. And, and building a little bit of a, a, a skill set surrounding uh, safety and, and the sort of discipline and, and being accurate with firearms. And so th- these sort of things, I, I did a lot of diving, not that that ever helped me out much, rock climbing and what have you, but they were all things that in my mind were, were gearing me towards that lifestyle. So let's fast forward to the selection process. I mean, just take us through your recollections of that, because selection for um, special forces always captures the public imagination and people are always intrigued as to the reality of how people push themselves through that process and, and come out the other side. Yeah, for sure. I guess by design, it's a it is a, a very um, it's a black box. It's not widely publicised, and you you pick up on bits and pieces. And and I, I think that leads to this perception of well, special operations in general as being these super soldiers. And the reality is, I mean, they're, they're super soldiers amongst them. But the reality is, they're they're generally pretty average blokes that just have an a, an unusual uh, ability to keep going and just not quit. Just that kind of grit and determination, that dogged determination but coming back to my experience, I decided that I wanted to do this goal from 2001 and then it wasn't until 2008 so that, that I got on the course. I had to finish my medical schooling, which took me through till the end of 04. And then I did an internship like any other junior doctor in a civilian hospital and then a further year, which was the, the contract that I had. And then I entered into the army system in 2007. I posted into my, my first army unit, which was up in Darwin. From there, I needed to complete a suite of courses to become deployable as a medical officer. So 2007 was pretty much taken up by all those courses. 
So it wasn't until 2008 that I was really free to be able to go and, and attempt selection and I was uh, lucky enough to get on the course that year. And so by, I guess by the time I, I turned up, I'd, I'd had this goal for about seven years and, and I, <laughs> I was so focused on it that in my mind, I, I, I just simply wasn't going to quit. You know, I, I, and I'd had a lot of time to prepare myself physically and I was lucky that I, I stayed relatively injury free and my body was, was okay, got me to the starting line. And then you, I mean, you start and it's, you, you, you're on the roller coaster. It's just a, a uh, three weeks of, of constant activity. And it's, I suppose you, you just hang on. You just, if, if you don't quit and you're there at the end and they pick you up, then, then that's how it is. But yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting beast. It's a very deliberate and very strategic process that's by design very physical but in my opinion that what they're truly testing is the psychology of the soldier and and you need the physical part to physically break someone down to the point where they're absolutely exhausted they're food and sleep deprived and and then you, you really see what they're worth at that point and and that's where the, the the true real testing selection comes in that final five days when you've got that cumulative fatigue of the the first two and a bit weeks and and then they really tighten the screws and, and uh, see what they're left with. So what did you discover? Who did you find out that you were as a result of doing that? Oh, look, I think it was a very validating activity, I guess. It, it validated the training that I'd done physically. It, um, in essence, it's, it's a very simple process, the selection process. There's no trick to it. They're not trying to trick you. They, they simply set tasks that are, are very challenging physically and, and um, psychologically challenging. I guess that a lot of the time there'll be tasks that are set that are by design unachievable and then they want to see how you go when you fail at that task and, and then they set you a new task and you try that and you fail at that. And it's just, I guess... I'm not sure that I, I learnt terrible amounts about myself. I, I, it was gratifying to be able to hang in there and, and be there at the end. But my recollection of it was that exactly as I said, it was a very simple process. There was no trick. They would set the task, you'd do it. And I think the, the key was just to acknowledge that, that it, it was going to be a rough time and, and just do your best to mentally hang in there when you're physically really, uh, really fatigued. So once you've passed selection, what do you remember about those early days when you joined the regiment? I mean, what was it like for you having achieved that dream, that ambition that you'd had for seven years? Yeah, I, I guess it's, I think it's important to, to clarify here that you, you don't really join the regiment after finishing selection. And a lot of people fixate on the selection course as being, if I can just get through that three weeks and see that as being the, the kind of hurdle. And, and it's not, I mean, it's the first step. And so all it is, is selecting you as suitable for further training with the unit. So yeah, I mean, and I acknowledged it as such, it was, it's a, it's a hurdle and it's a significant hurdle. And, and I was of course happy that I got to the end of it and was considered suitable uh, for further training. What ended up happening at that point for me, however, was I was with uh, the 5th Battalion, uh, 5RAR in, in Darwin, and they were heading over to East Timor. So whereas the, the rest of the people that I did selection with that had been picked up after the course 
commenced uh, their further training, their reinforcement cycle towards actually getting qualified as an SAS operator, which I never did uh, in the end. I never did. So I got unplugged. They were unable to replace the doctor for the trip to Timor with 5RAR. So I ended up leaving Perth at that point, going back to Darwin and deploying with 5RAR to Timor at that stage, which was, of course, a huge disappointment at the time, to be honest. It was a big letdown. And it was, I guess, at the end of the course, everyone is fairly physically and psychologically exhausted. And um, it's it's fairly, I guess, cathartic to be there with that crew that you've experienced that with. And then there is the, the recovery phase after the course. And then you start on you that reinforcement cycle towards the, the uh, being a, a qualified SAS operator. But I was unfortunately unplugged from that at the time. When I say unfortunately, my, my commanding officer at 5RAR was very good to let me go and do the course. I've, I've got, to, got to say that. He was fantastic in letting me go. It was well within his rights to, to not let me go, but he did. And the agreement was that if they couldn't replace me, I'd go back to the unit and deploy. And that was what happened. So when it comes back to that kind of sense of accomplishment, it was great to have done that, but it certainly wasn't. The, the goal was to, to finish that whole process, uh, uh, but I, I was, it wasn't to be at the time. So I went back to Darwin and deployed to Timor. And by this time, you also had a wife and a young son. So what was the impact then, perhaps, of your first deployment? Yeah, I did. So I'd um, when I returned from selection, and I'd actually got an infection uh, in one of my legs on selection, and and towards the end of the course, within about five days, I I, I knew that I had a fairly bad uh, infection in, in my leg there, but I, I didn't want to declare it at the time. I knew they'd medically remove me from the course, so I figured either it would it would physically cause me to stop, or I'd get to the end and worry about it then. And and fortunately, the latter occurred. So when I went back to Darwin, I ended up having to have surgery to have some basically some rotting tissue uh, cut out of my leg from <laughs> the infection. And, and then I had a, a long-term drip, a thing called a pick line that, that goes in and, and threads into your, fundamentally the top of your heart. And I, I had a little antibiotic bottle that infused antibiotics for 24 hours a day. So I had been away and my wife, God bless her, we had a young son who was just about to turn one at the time and had been away, done my selection, come home fairly broken and, and pretty much had to go straight in hospital for surgery and then some time there and, and just got out before my son's first birthday uh, and then re- recovered from that and bounced straight over to Timor from there. So, I mean, that was, the, my my wife's been just brilliant throughout. And we've, we've been together a long time since my early years in medical school. She knew that this was my dream. She knew that this was who I wanted to be. And she was, uh, God bless her, very supportive of it over the years at great personal sacrifice. But yeah, at that stage, we just had the, the one little guy. And uh, yeah, so I, I made it home and was out of hospital for his first birthday. And then a couple of weeks later, headed off to Timor. And how did that deployment go? As I said before, the context within which I deployed was that I'd been successful on the selection course, had to leave that environment to come back and, and deploy uh, with 5RAR. It, from the perspective of it, it was my first deployment. So it was it was great uh, from that regard because I guess most people that join the military or the army, they, they want to deploy. That's, the, that's the, the goal, I think, for most people. It's the, the pointy end of the job. However, by the time we got to Timor, I'm not sure if it was a peacekeeping or peace maintenance. I can't remember the technical term for it, but it was there was nothing going on tactically over there at all. The, the threat was was non-existent, and so it was from that angle. Having left the reinforcement cycle for SASR to to go and then deploy to Timor to 
an environment, as the, the doctor for the task group, into an environment where uh, there was a, a big company, Aspen, had set up a big field hospital there and they had a bunch of doctors, anaesthetists, surgeons. They were doing all the medical stuff and I kind of found myself over there fundamentally jobless as the doctor <laughs> with, the, with the task group, but which created its own opportunities. Once again, the commanding officer at the time of 5RAR was a, was a really a brilliant individual and, and allowed me to go and plug in. There was a, a sniper course being run in the hills out of uh, Dili there and and so I plugged in on that and went and did the the components of the sniper course that were running up there and then there was a, a second course a, a recon commander's course being run up there as well and so I, I patched into that as well so it was a great opportunity to learn some field craft with those elements that was useful in in my future career but from a medical perspective it was a it was a, a quite a disappointing trip to be honest but nonetheless it was my first deployment it was great it got me uh, my first medal other than that ADM or whatever that red one is and <laughs> I should know I'm sorry but uh, yeah so it, for, from a lot from a lot of reasons it was great to get a deployment under my belt but it, uh, it it was a little bit professionally unrewarding to be honest and then on your return from Timor your next deployment was to Afghanistan it was so what happened in the end when I returned so I, I had my, my deployment was meant to be eight months to Timor and and in the end it got cut short uh, on account of having made moves towards the special operations command environment and I returned from Timor after four months to post to second commando regiment so I didn't go back to Perth at that point I went to two commando or four RAR as it was at the time that was the start of 2009 and posted in there as one of the medical officers and and so so that was, uh, I mean, that was that was excellent. My objective from the start had been to be a doctor with special operations, and and I guess in many ways that represented that completion of that that goal and the start of my career in special operations, uh, albeit not at SASR as I'd, I'd initially planned, but nonetheless, uh, two commando turned out to be an absolutely brilliant unit to be a doctor within, and and so turned up at two, started to do all the initial induction special operations courses different weapons and what have you and, and the bits and pieces that go with that, which was fantastic. I mean, that was the army that I wanted to be a part of. And, and it, it certainly in those early bits of training didn't disappoint at all. I went on to the domestic counterterrorism capability and so supporting that and exercising with DCT doing stuff on and off ships and in and out of helicopters was was just great fun and then went into special operations task group was was in high, high rotation in Afghanistan at the time and so I um, got nominated to deploy with the SATG to Afghanistan for the back half of 2009 so it was a it was just a brilliant period of time professionally for me to roll into to commando go on team for domestic counterterrorism and then have the opportunity to go overseas and, and deploy. So went over and for the back half of 2009, did my first rotation with, uh, well, my first trip to Afghanistan with the, the SOTG there on one of their rotations. With hindsight, I didn't know any different. Uh, it sort of, it's only with reflection that I realised that was a. It was at a time where we were still doing a lot of vehicle-mounted operations. The IED threat hadn't escalated to the point, and also the aviation support wasn't yet at the point where most of our operations were air mobile type stuff. So lots of time out and about in vehicles, which dictated that most of our operations were done locally to Tarankout and, and Uruzgan province, whereas on later rotations we were operating primarily in, in Helmand and, and what have you, the more uh, traditionally active 
fighting environments at that time of the conflict. And so there was a lot of activity on that first rotation. I uh, was was in a, a really privileged position where the, the commando company that I was attached with uh, were very willing to, to get me out and about. And, and so it was, it was a fantastic professional experience for me to be involved in that and getting out and about on the ground in a, in a combat zone and experiencing combat for the first time, which was something that, uh, once again, I think most army people that go into an infantry or a, a, a special operations environment want to experience. I mean, it's, it's well, I think that that's what they, <laughs> I'm not sure. It was certainly something that I wanted to experience. And I did, and I enjoyed it. I felt the job we were doing was meaningful. I felt the job that I was doing personally, medically supporting that element was meaningful. And I could see the result of our medical support being life-saving on occasion to local nationals, particularly. We luckily didn't have any serious injuries or fatalities from our task group on that rotation. Now, towards the end, we started to get a bit more helicopter support and started to venture a bit further down into Helmand and, and uh, get more into the fighting. But that was really quite towards the end and, and uh, so yeah that, that rotation was fantastic and I'd, I'd left there at the end of that year just wanting more basically <laughs> like I couldn't wait to get back. You mentioned wanting more you also mentioned about this being what you'd been waiting for what you'd been training for how would you describe to somebody listening to this podcast who, who doesn't have a military background what that first exposure to being in combat was like? I suppose it's it's hard to hard to explain if you if you don't get it you don't get it um, and if it's not something that you think I guess it's like and people use the analogy of if you, you train in a sporting team and and then never actually play a game type thing and so I guess to a degree I'd, I'd done a whole bunch of medical training and then towards the deployment done a bunch of uh, the military specific trauma stuff so I had that skill set there that that a part of me wanted to use I think to validate the skill set and. To, to test myself in that environment and then to a, a degree I, I was trained in the, the military side of things and, and I guess curious about how that would play out on the ground and, and over all of that I, I suppose I wanted to know how I would go in that environment. I, I, in many ways that combat environment can be quite testing I suppose to see how you're going to go under those circumstances and you can train as realistically as you like but until you're in that environment you, you don't really know how you're going to behave and and so I actually found my first exposure like like I said earlier I found it terribly exciting I never found myself scared the first time that I found myself in combat and getting shot at fairly accurately I actually found myself giggling to be honest like it was more like a sort of schoolgirl and a soldier I just thought it was hilarious for some reason and yeah, so it was a, a strange reaction, but not an unusual one talking to other people. It's, uh, I imagine that probably the magnitude of what was going on maybe wasn't really sinking in at the time, but yeah, it was, it, it was odd. I, I just found it exciting and invigorating and stimulating and loved it, to be honest. So did you have any revelations about yourself and how you react under pressure or, or were your reactions pretty much what you'd expected of, of how you'd respond? Oh, like I said, I guess you don't really know what to expect, how you're going to respond. I think most of us like to think we'll go okay under pressure, but uh, then particularly as blokes, I guess, being a bit ego-driven, you'd like to think that you'll perform well in, in that high-threat environment, but until you're there, you don't really know. But oftentimes, I, and prior to that, I, I suppose I'd been in high-stress environments in a medical situation where I was never at risk, but you're dealing with life-and-death type stuff for your patients. 
patients and, and you, you need to be able to perform and think relatively clearly under pressure there. And I, I guess the, the combat environment was just probably a, a bit of an extension of that. It was just, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. I just uh, never never really felt that my, even though it was with hindsight, but I never really felt that my life was, was at, at risk. And I, I guess to a degree, I was relatively philosophical that if you get hit, you get hit, you know, that's just how it is. Of course, you do your best not to, but if it happens, it happens and, and you deal with that when it happens. But fortunately, it didn't happen to me. So, But on your second rotation to Afghanistan, things were different. Things got a bit tougher. That was a real pivotal moment for me professionally and personally on the second rotation. As I said, we rolled through that first trip and there was a lot of near misses. A couple of guys got shot, but they were relatively uh, trivial wounds, thankfully, that they made full recoveries from. Lots of bullets passing through people's kits and lots of holes in clothing from bullets that didn't touch people. People getting, you know, the safety blown off the pistol on their hip and all this. And so it was It was almost sort of, it was a false sense of security and we'd, we'd come out of there with everyone we went in with which was excellent and then on the second trip our task group had linked up with the the US Drug Enforcement Administration the DEA and we were doing some combined operations so we started to move into a bit of counter narcotic stuff which was the DEA's mandate and brought with it a lot of fairly intense fighting and on that rotation we started to to lose guys so it was the first time where I'd experienced losing people on a trip more so the people that we lost. So my first experience with it, we'd been down in, in Helmand and we'd been uh, on a job in a, a Taliban village and there was pretty intense fighting. We, we were there for about 48 hours and we were about 36 hours into it. And it we'd been more or less non-stop combat for that period and, and we had a small dismounted patrol hit a rather large IED, one of the blokes uh, tri- triggered an IED there and, and I was part of the quick reaction force that responded to that and so we got, got there within a few minutes and uh, Unfortunately, we weren't able to save one of the guys there. And and that for me was, looking back on it now, it was the first time where a few different factors had occurred for me. One was, as I said, it was we lost a bloke from our team, someone I knew was a friend of mine. Uh, but I think the, the big significant thing was on the ground there as we were trying to resuscitate him, I was the, the guy holding the can. Like I, I, we'd, we'd lost, certainly I'd been part of medical teams that had lost people in the past, but it was always in a hospital environment and generally I was subordinate to someone else. They were always a stranger that had come in with, with whatever, you know, the heart attack or, or some trauma or what have you. And so you're able to distance yourself from that person and it still hits home to a degree, but it was just a whole different level when it's someone you know, someone who you've had breakfast with, you know, the day before. And also when you're the one everyone's looking to as the person who's going to save this situation and, and you simply can't. The other complicating factor there is in, in the civilian environment, someone dies and then that's the end of it and you can do your debrief and you can have a cup of coffee and all the rest of it. In this environment, the, it was getting into the evening, the, the uh Firefight was escalating. We had an aeromedical evacuation helicopter in a holding pattern waiting because there'd been other casualties from the same blast that we needed to get on this helicopter. And uh, we were a, a small element that was dislocated from our main force. The, the enemy knew we were somewhat pinned down. They knew we had casualties and they were probing our position. So there was a, a tactical situation that was very much evolving and deteriorating playing into all of this so that you've lost a bloke, there's all of that, but you can't kind of stop to deal with that immediately because 
priorities, there's there's other priorities. And so, yeah, it sort of had to switch back to that and um, work out the rest of it, do the casualty evacuation for the other guys. And, and then we had to extract that night as well. So the, and, and then, you know, the show goes on as well. You, you get back and, and we ended up getting back uh, probably uh, shortly after... 1am I think it was and then and then we did all the processing that's involved with uh, when when you you lose a, a military member overseas uh, the immediate processing and the handing over of the the body and what have you to the appropriate authorities and then I was on another job with a different element that morning so I, I ended up getting to bed about sort of five and getting back up at six to go out and, and do another job the next day so the show kept going and, and yeah that wasn't unique to me that's the whole task group you, you can't just drop your bundle because you've lost a bloke you got to just crack on you got a job to do and and so I guess in in many ways you pack that away put it in the back of your mind crack on with what you have to do try and stay focused on the task at hand and then as it turned out a uh, you know, within a, about a month of that, we at less than actually within a few weeks, similar thing happened. Uh, lost another guy on target that uh, that I had a, a, a well spent about 30, 40 minutes trying to resuscitate and couldn't couldn't salvage. And and then a, another month after that, we had a third guy, and there was a so. And as I said, not unique to me. I, I happened to be there on all three occasions, as did a lot of blokes. And and these were guys that I knew, but they were team, you know, close teammates of, of most of the other crew. So the, the, the task group was was really accumulating this trauma in a, in a really compressed time frame, but you, you didn't have any ability to deal with it. And it, it probably would have been harmful to try and deal with it at the time because you had to, you had to go on with your, your job. So as you've described there, you lost three guys. What was the impact on you at that time? Because you ended up having two subsequent deployments after that. And yet this must have had a significant impact on your work as a doctor and also as a, as a member of the team. Look, it did. It, it had a really profound impact. And as I said earlier, it was a pivotal moment in my military career and also in my personal life and my growth as a human. It had a real impact across the board for me. Professionally, we wrapped up that rotation and like I said, the show went on. We had a job to do. It was still all uh, targeting. We had the DEA responsibility and, and we were making real progress there from a professional perspective in the roles that we had. Finished up our, our rotation, thankfully, after the, the third guy that we lost. We didn't lose any others from our element. There was others that I were involved with who, from a partner force perspective, we had a few partner force soldiers uh, killed and seriously injured, unfortunately, there. But we wrapped up that rotation and came back to Australia. And because of those experiences, I really had a renewed emphasis on my responsibility to train my medics, to train myself. It changed the way I saw my role in Afghanistan. I, I came back from there and by that time I deployed on, on that rotation. My wife and I had had a, a second young son and I'd, I'd left 10 days after uh, he was born and then so came home to him being uh, seven, seven odd months old and, and plugged back into that. And, and I was... I think the majority of the task group uh, were, were fairly rattled after that rotation. I guess when you get home, it's when you can let your guard down a little bit and start to try and process events. And, and for me, a big part of that was trying to make sense of what had happened there's, of course, I think for anyone medical, when you have a bad outcome and you, you lose a patient, it's human nature to run the what ifs through your mind and think of how you might have done it differently, what might have made a difference. And, and so there was all that processing that needed to go on. All the while, went back to work and work 
whether you were at home or away, was very busy. So by that time, backing up, I, I had posted to SASR. So just before that rotation, I'd, I'd gone across to SASR. And so I was in Perth and went back into to life at the unit there. And really with a renewed emphasis and, and motivation to focus on training, to really drive the, myself uh, to a high standard and the, the guys under my command to a high standard because the reality of what we were expected to do in Afghanistan finally had hit home. I hadn't seen it on the first trip because I hadn't been exposed to it, but I'd seen firsthand on my second trip what level we needed to be at as a cumulative medical entity supporting special operations in the field. And so that that was a real focus of mine to to drive that training and it was within my capability. And so we, we trained very hard and I was privileged to have a, a really great crew there that were, were up to the task and, and then would consistently uh, live up to that that standard that I set. And so that and I guess to a degree keeping myself very busy and very focused was part of how I was dealing with the the trauma at the time was just to throw myself right back into it. Occupy myself, and then basically try and get back over there. I, I was desperate to, which sounds strange, I guess, considering the second tour had been really quite horrible in a lot of ways. I, I was busting to get back over, maybe in a sense to try and right some wrongs, to try and get get. Uh, I don't know exactly what my motivation was, but uh, when I'd first come back, I, I swore I'd never go back again, and, and told my wife that I was done. And then uh, within weeks of that, I was jockeying to get on the the very next trip I could. So, <laughs> so uh, but yeah, I think I felt that I, I needed to get back there and and uh, get some some closure, maybe to a degree. I'm not sure, but yeah. So with renewed training, renewed resolve, you went back twice more. So how were those last two rotations different from the first two? Look, I, I guess the, well, the first two, so the first one was just all, all good fun, all care, no responsibility. I was new to the job, no one died, and it was it was just a great experience, left me wanting more. The second one, as I said, it, it opened my eyes to, to what the job actually was and, and to the, the bad side of it, what could eventuate when it didn't go to plan. For the third and fourth ones, in the first, well, certainly my first trip, I, I did everything I could to get out on every job I could. If there was a helicopter going somewhere, I wanted to be on it. If uh, there was a job going on, I wanted to be on it, whether I was going to be useful or not, whether I thought I was going to be anywhere near someone getting injured or not. In between my first and second rotations, I wasn't in Afghanistan at the time, but uh, the second commando regiment had had a, a helicopter that they were in crash and, and the unit had lost uh, several members there and had, had a number of others severely injured from that. And so cumulatively having been there for a few deaths and, and then having seen some of these other experiences, I'd, I'd changed my view on my role. The other factor that played in was I'd realised that, of course, I couldn't be everywhere at every time to try and sort people out if they got injured. And, and that was a, another emphasis behind making sure I tried to train my blokes as, as good as they could to be able to do that role. And, and they consistently did, you know. And, and what I came to realise over that period was that the reality was these, these combat medics could do the job as well as I could. There was no question about it. There was no requirement to be a doctor in those environments, a highly trained combat medic can do every life-saving intervention in the field. And, and so the going back for the third and fourth rotations, I found myself really scrutinising my role in any given operation as to whether it was going to value add or not. So if, if there was a test flight going, training flight, 
doing some winching that I didn't need to be on and I didn't need the skill set. There was no way I was going to get on that helicopter. I guess I, be, I started to become a little bit, uh, I'm trying to think of the right term, but 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 a bit more cautious. I guess I, I, I by that time I had the two young kids a, a little bit more sort of superstitious about things, and but a bit more deliberate in, in the, the amount of risk I was assuming if it wasn't going to add value. If there was a, a job going on and I could see that it was a high-risk job, there was likely to be casualties and I was going to be near enough to that casualty to provide meaningful response, then absolutely, I was there every time. We'd do a lot of work with the American Ford surgical teams that would, would have a lot of trauma coming through there. And in those second, uh, third and fourth rotations, in the first couple, I was down there every day. And if there was trauma coming in, if I saw the aeromedical evacuation helicopter coming in, I'd hop on our little quad bike and zip down just to see what was going on. In the third and fourth rotations, I wasn't so keen to see the busted up people. I just said there was something inside of me was starting to fill up a little bit. And uh, I heard a a military surgeon once refer to a bucket of trauma. He described it as that that cumulatively fills over years and years and years. And at some point it overflows and things go horribly wrong and the wheels come off it. And, And I think this is a good analogy. And I think anyone early in their medical career those looking for that trauma, you want to you want to see it, you want to be a part of it, you want to experience it. Uh, what I found in those last two rotations was, once again, certainly if, if I was going to be of use, if they needed an extra set of hands, I, I was there absolutely every time I was, I was keen. But if I was just going to be a spectator, sort of standing in the back, just looking at, at another bloke with his legs blown off or another kid that had been shot or what have you, I, I chose not to. It just, it didn't, it wasn't, there was nothing for me to gain from it. And I guess my my bucket, uh, if you like, was starting to fill up and I recognised that. I still was very engaged in the process, but I was a bit more deliberate in what I was, the risk that I was taking on there. And I guess part of me was thinking of my, my family more. I had the two young kids there. And, a, and also a part of me started to realise that the more you roll the dice, I started to see more and more people involved in helicopter crashes, getting shot, getting this, getting that, training exercises. And the thing that occurred to me was it was never that they were a, a bad soldier or they were doing anything particularly wrong. It was just luck. I was in a helicopter that that did actually crash on my second rotation, and thankfully it was a it was a fairly soft crash. To be honest, we 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 had fairly minimal injuries. There was a couple of minor breaks and a dislocated shoulder, I think. But once again, it was just unlucky that I was on that helicopter and and not another one. And then that's all it is sometimes. So I guess from a from that perspective, I, I started to to uh, be a bit more risk averse, if you like, as as much as you can be in on special operations in Afghanistan. To hear the rest of Sharon Maskell-Dare's conversation with Dr. Dan Pronk, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Part two is out tomorrow. You can subscribe in your podcast app, including Apple Podcasts or in Stitcher for both Apple and Android. You can also sign up for our newsletter. Go to www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com forward slash subscribe and enter your email address. Sign up to never miss an episode. To see images of Dan in uniform, check us out on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. You can find Dan on Instagram at Dan Pronk. And if you enjoyed the episode, recommend it to your friends. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>